to another episode of Future Nation. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Where we speak with some of today's brightest innovators and explore the future of disruptive innovation. Let's go. Here's your host, Daniel Callow. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Future Nation. I am your host, Daniel Callow. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Don Perugini. Dr. Perugini has been in the field of artificial intelligence for over 20 years. It was as a research scientist for the Department of Defense where he saw that AI could be used commercially to solve real-world problems. In 2007, he formed his first AI company, gaining rapid growth and global attention. Within eight short years, it was successfully acquired by Ernest & Young. In 2017, he formed his next AI venture, where he and his partners would set themselves on a mission to improve the fertility rates of IVF patients. Today, Dr. Perugini is the co-founder of both Life Whisperer and Presagen, leveraging artificial intelligence to improve patient outcomes and help create a healthier world for all. I introduce to you Dr. Don Perugini. Hello, Don, and thank you very much for being on Future Nation today. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So tell us a bit about yourself. Well, my career started uh, around 20 years ago in the uh, Department of Defence. So uh, I was a research scientist working on artificial intelligence, uh, technology around, uh, it's based on psychology and behavioural science for predicting and automating human behaviour. Yep. Uh, my PhD is in artificial intelligence as well with the University of Melbourne. And after spending 10 years in uh, Department of Defence, I thought, this is great technology. You can actually use this commercially for real world problems. Yeah. So I talked to my wife. She's got a PhD in medicine. Said, you know, I'm thinking of leaving defence and starting a business uh, using this technology. And she was quite supportive. And she eventually became part of the business as well. Yeah. Around 2007, we started a business called ISD Analytics. Okay. So what that business did is use that technology, so AI based on behavioural science and psychology, to predict human behaviour of large populations. Yeah. And the reason we'll do that is either government policy to understand well, if we have a policy intervention, how people respond, or business strategy, looking at the impact of disruption on consumers, so disruptive products. Yes. That business went quite well. We work in a whole range of different industries, water, energy, um, uh, emergency response, health, transport, uh, around the world. So we had an office here in, in, in Australia, in Adelaide, in Silicon Valley. Wow. Uh, worked in Europe as well. And uh, that business was eventually acquired by Ernst & Young, uh, EY in 2015. Yeah, nice. So we hung around EY for a year, uh, realized how much we enjoyed the startup scene and innovative and building products and companies with deep technology. So um, yeah, we decided to get back out there and start another business. However, we thought we'll take a six month break. And in that break, uh, you know, we thought we'd give back. We had a business, we had mentors, we thought we'd give back to the community and, and start mentoring, uh, particularly people in deep technology in universities. Yeah. And Michelle, my wife, she became part of this e-challenge program for the University of Adelaide to help researchers with understanding commercialization. And she was put together with someone called Jonathan Hall. He was on his second PhD. 
And he had this idea about using artificial intelligence for IVF to non-invasively look at embryos in IVF. Yep. And the ultimate goal was to improve chances of success in pregnancy. Wow. And we thought this was great. You know, she had a medical background. I had an AI background. Yep. We just fell in love with the idea. Um, so we approached him and said, hey, you know, are you serious about doing this? Serious about commercializing? We'd love to get together with you and, and see if we can make this work. Yeah. So he said yes and moved pretty fast from there. We established the business in 2017 and it's kind of where everything started. How exciting. So that was the start of both Life Whisperer and Presagen. Life Whisperer and Presagen. So there's actually two parts. So Life Whisperer is really the product for IVF, but really when we talk to Jonathan about the application, um, and we've had experience in our previous business around this, we suggested, well, let's build a platform. So really what we're doing there is applying artificial intelligence, so deep learning, computer vision to medical images. We said, well, why don't we build a platform while we're addressing this specific problem for IVF that can actually be applied to other medical applications. So we decided to not only create Life Whisperer, which was a product, but also Presagen, which was a business specifically around helping clinics and and medical institutes create uh, medical diagnostics products around images. So medical imaging using artificial intelligence and building a platform to go from the data all the way through to a real usable patient system that they can use in a clinical setting. So Life Whisperer improves the chances of fertility for an IVF patient. Can you explain to us in a bit more detail how Life Whisperer accomplishes this? Okay, so first I'll explain what Life Whisperer is really about. So in IVF, the process is there's female eggs and there's multiple female eggs, could be 10, could be 20, and they're fertilized with sperm. After around five days, they form embryos. Yep. Okay, so there could be, say, eight or 10 embryos in a dish. Now, at that stage, a clinician looks down a microscope and needs to decide which of those embryos they need to transfer back into the patient in order to get pregnant. And that decision is quite hard. It's subjective. It's limited to what the eye can see. So the whole idea of Life Whisperer is that clinicians still looking down the microscope, they take an image of those embryos at day five and just drag and drop those images onto our web application. So it's a scalable web application. And AI runs in the cloud and they get an instant report as to the viability of those embryos, whether it leads to a pregnancy or not, based on training AI on thousands of images of embryos that we knew what the outcome was, whether it led to a pregnancy or not. Yeah. So that's really what Life Whisper is about. It's about how do we analyze these embryos and try to improve the pregnancy success rate for infertile couples that are going through IVF. Wow, that's amazing. So the results are instant. They're instant. So yeah, just drag and drop the images, AI runs in the cloud and they get to instant result within say 20 seconds yep. as to what the AI says as the viability of those embryos. And the clinician still has a final decision as to which embryo they implant, but this provides extra information for them to kind of help them make that particular decision. So can they leave the decision-making to the AI or is the AI there more to augment their decision-making? It's both. So, you know, firstly, it's a very hard decision. It can be subjective. There's a big difference between experienced embryologists and non-experienced embryologists. And in the end, if they don't get pregnant, the embryologist needs to face the patient and explain that it didn't happen. So to minimize not having success in the pregnancy, um, but also it is about augmenting their decision. So it doesn't actually save them any time. It's the, the AI here is not about saving them time. And it is only a very small part of what an embryologist actually does. Yeah. But it's a critical part. It's a critical decision-making component where the AI can actually help them make that decision and ultimately improve the chances of pregnancy. Are there any other applications within the embryologist processes that you see your technology may be able to assist them either now or in the future? 
At the moment, our flagship product is looking at viability. So is that embryo going to lead to a pregnancy or not? Yep. So that's really a key area for us. We've actually conducted a second study with a major clinic in the US. They operate across eight states. We wanted to look if AI, just by looking at an image of an embryo, could detect genetic defects. So at the moment, how they detect genetic defects is they take a biopsy. So you have a healthy embryo, they have to actually cut out some of the healthy embryo, take it away for testing. It's risky, invasive, costly. And we showed that there was quite a high level of accuracy in identifying Down syndrome just by looking at a static 2D image of the embryo. That's groundbreaking. That's game changing. So it's still early days for that particular product. Once we get this uh, initial product to market with the viability, that's going to be our next uh, application in the IVF sector. But more broadly, as I mentioned, we have a platform called Presagen, which can be applied to any medical diagnostics problems. So as long as there's medical images and medical expertise, because you do need the medical expertise to ensure that you target the AI in the right way and get a good result, then we can go through that process and create products that patients can actually use or clinicians can use in clinics or hospitals around the world in a very rapid amount of time. So with all these new AI-based products, could that ultimately influence the way that embryologists are trained? Possibly. We try to ensure that by using our system, there's very little process change yeah. and they're going through the same process. So so the whole idea is everything remains the same. They're still looking down the microscope, et cetera. They're still taking images. It's just that drag and drop. So you want to be as minimally invasive on their process as you can. You know, health professionals don't like to change their process too much. They've been doing it for a long time. But what's really interesting is that IVF, for example, it's quite a conservative industry. It's not necessarily technically advanced. Yeah. And what this does is it starts to introduce quite advanced technology to them. So who knows where that may take them in the future to start to really embrace advanced technology that can help their patients with their treatment outcomes. Is the product ready for IVF clinics? And if so, what challenges are you currently facing in getting it in? Okay, so the technology is ready to use. So we've done this international clinical study. We've got our first AI version that we've shown is accurate, robust, can apply in different clinical settings around the world. Before you deploy most medical technology, you need regulatory approval. So we're currently going through regulatory approval here in Australia, um, in the US. Australia and the US are our key target markets. So once we get through that barrier, we can launch the product, which we hope to do in this half of the year. The next is getting the clinics and the patients to use it. So with all medical products, or most medical products, sorry, there's two customers. There's the doctors and the clinicians that would use the technology, and there's a patient that values the results of the particular technology that they want to pay for it. Yeah. So in the IVF sector, what we've done is we're actually not charging the clinic to use the software. So we're giving them access to the software if they want So we're not charging the clinic. Yeah, that's great. But what we're doing is whenever they use the software for a patient, so really the patient wants it and is willing to pay for it, and it's very low cost, Yeah, a few hundred dollars in a treatment that's over $10,000. If they want to use the software, when they drag and drop those images, then they pass on that cost to the patient. So really in the end, the patient is using it. And that's kind of how we assess other medical products that we may get into with the Presagen, the the broader business. Yep. And some of the criteria are, is the problem doing the medical diagnostics big enough or important enough for the patient wanting to pay a certain amount of money in order to get that particular service? So it sounds like a lot of it relies on the patient's knowledge of the available technology. Do you think it will be a challenge to educate the patients? And have you had much response from potential patients wanting to use the AI for their upcoming treatments? 
I think from the patient's perspective, it's quite easy to understand that, you know, using AI, looking at the embryos can potentially lead to a successful outcome. Yeah, We've had quite a lot of PR and the like over the last uh, three to six months, and we're getting a lot of patients sending us requests about, oh, is this product to market yet? And our response is obviously, well, soon, we just need to go through a regulatory approval. The real key is getting the clinicians to believe that the technology is going to make a difference to the patient's treatment and their outcome. And that's why we've done quite a very large patient study to get the data so that we can present to the clinicians and say, hey, we've proven it. We've worked with all these clinics and clinicians around the world and actually demonstrated through good scientific methodology that using this technology, this software, will have an improved outcome for your patient. So once you get over that barrier, clinicians will be more inclined to recommend that to their patients. And from the patient's perspective, it's a no-brainer. It's such a minimal overhead to potentially help them. Let's talk more about Presogen. We've discussed its main application being Life Whisperer. Where else can this deep technology be applied to? I would assume applications within radiology would be next. There's lots of applications, you know, there's, you know, cancer, radiology, et cetera. We're in discussion with different medical institutes in the US, uh, Asia, around different applications. We have a slightly different business models. You know, we're not aiming for pathology. You know, that's quite a large area. There's a lot of players in the market. We have strict criteria in assessing which type of problems we would address. And they have to be quite specific. You know, looking at embryos is quite specific. It needs to be a global problem, but also a specific problem that uh, can be demonstrated that it can improve patient outcomes. The patient's willing to pay a small cost for that analysis and that becomes worthwhile. So the value proposition ultimately is a small cost for improving the quality of the diagnostics. Yep, improved quality of diagnostics. And the reason you'd want to do that, so for the health sector or for the clinician or the hospital, it could be the fact that you want the diagnostics done faster, cheaper, better, so more accurately, or just more consistently. So if you look at the case of IVF, there can be very different results, inconsistencies between embryologists. So Australia, US, we have highly experienced embryologists. So, you know, some of the best in the world. Other countries, they may not have the level of experience. So AI can really help provide that consistency in terms of the patient outcomes and the diagnosis. Yeah, AI definitely helps to improve consistency. In relation to the software itself, you say it can be used for a range of different medical applications. Is there any particular field you're focusing on and how adaptable is the software for these different applications? Anything to do with medical imaging is kind of our forte. So that's where we're focusing. We've already got a front-end patient system that uh, once we build the AI for any medical application, it's ready to be delivered. So any hospital, clinic, anywhere in the world can access that AI on demand whenever they want. Just drag and drop images, they get a result. So really it's about getting out there and engaging medical institutes and clinics, et cetera, that have the data. that have the expertise and bringing them together in order to solve these specific patient problems. So we have quite a unique business model. So we don't do consulting, for example. The thing is that medical institutes have the data. They know the data is valuable. They just don't know how to leverage it, monetize it, et cetera. So what we do is we actually partner with clinics and hospitals, those with the data and the expertise, And we do not only the technical work to be able to solve those image-based medical diagnostics problems, 
but do the commercialization for them to build a product that can be scaled globally yeah. that can actually address those patient outcomes. And in return, we can provide relevant benefits to the clinics that participate in building that product, whether it's royalties or discounts or whatever yeah. the case may be. So one, it's more of a partnering model. And two, it's about how do you build scalable products in certain areas that the problem is global and how do we solve that global problem for patients and not just for that one clinic? In the world of AI, there are usually very large data sets to process. How do you go about processing these large data sets? Is that something that you do in-house or are you leveraging third-party resources? No, it's all done by us. Medical data is sensitive, so we have to ensure that all the security is taken care of. Yep. What the process is, so you have lots of images. And what we do is we use two techniques. One's deep learning, one's computer vision. Yep. Now, computer vision algorithms or, or techniques that can analyze an image for specific features that you know about. It could be texture, color, uniformity, or whatever. Yep. The things that we know about the diagnosis of the images or what we know about embryos, the medical knowledge. Deep learning, on, on the other hand, is a really powerful technique. What that does is that goes through thousands of images and actually learns the complex patterns, even things it's really hard to see or impossible to see with the human eye, it learns all these complex patterns around what it means for a healthy embryo or an unhealthy embryo or an image of cancer and one that isn't cancerous. So it actually learns on its own. And what we do is we bring both those techniques together to create an AI that can quite accurately diagnose or assess those images in a useful way. Yep. And that's all done in-house. That's all done in-house. So we've built the platform. We have highly experienced people, multidisciplinary, which is important. Yep. People seem to think that you could just throw data at AI and get a good result. You really need domain expertise in the area you're working in. Yep. You need to understand the AI and what it's doing. And by bringing that together and targeting it in the right way, you get a good result in the end. And we've built this platform to just allow us to do that easily, allow us to access huge amounts of computing power so we can actually run this and, and optimize it and get a result quite quickly. Data privacy is a highly debated topic. Many people and organizations are somewhat reluctant to share that data for various reasons. In this case, however, do the benefits outweigh the costs in relation to giving up patient data to improve their outcome? In the health sector, medical data and privacy around it can be a big barrier. So trying to work with medical institutes as well as the, the startup community to try to get together and find a way to solve those problems because there's so much value in that data that can actually improve patient outcomes. Yep. It would be great if that could be done, but there's also an education as well. There's a lot of craziness going on with artificial intelligence. You know, people think they're going to create these robotic overlords that are <laughs> um, going to take over the world. And a lot of that's just not reality. Yeah. And there's a lack of understanding about what artificial intelligence is, what it can do. Yeah. So really education is a great way to kind of get the industry to think about how do we start to leverage technology. And, and through case studies, we talk a lot at conferences about what we've done with, with Life Whisperer, the process, the outcomes, the results. You know, we've just completed an international clinical study that showed Life Whisperer. And this is 12 clinics across the US, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia. Life Whisperer performs 30 30% better in terms of uh, determining the viability of embryos compared to highly skilled embryologists. Wow. Now, that's a great result um, that has potential to improve patient outcomes. You know, it was not a painful process for the clinics that participated. So just getting that education and telling them what it is at, at a simple level, how you can leverage it and giving them a level of comfort around participating and, and leveraging their particular data. 
Let's talk about AI. Can you explain in more detail how the AI works and more importantly, how it has the ability to make its decisions? There's two types of AI. One is the AI we use in Life Whisperer, which is deep learning. That looks for patterns in images. The decisions it makes in what it classifies as good embryos or not, or if it was to use in identifying you know, cats in trees and images, or if it was used to replicate human decisioning, why it's making those decisions is not always transparent and obvious. There's a whole separate area in AI, which is uh, what we call symbolic, which is more explainable. So you actually define the rules or the procedures, et cetera. So for example, I mentioned in my first business, we were looking at a technique that's based on psychology and behavioral science. Yeah looking at predicting human behavior and automating human behavior, that type of technique is a lot more explainable when you apply to certain types of problems, particularly problems that need human-like decision-making and reasoning. Yeah. So if you want an autonomous system that does need human-like reasoning and explainability, you may not want to use deep learning. However, deep learning is really good at looking at images and patterns. It's really good at text uh, and speech. And they're the type of problems that it's really suited to. And you can do extensive validation to ensure that there's trust and explainability around that particular problem you're solving. What are your thoughts on AI making autonomous decisions and the transparency behind how it makes those decisions? Okay, so that, that's that's quite a, a deep question. So let's step back a little bit. So what's important to note here is Life Whisperer is not making an autonomous decision for a clinician. So it is decision support. So the clinician in the end has the option not to use the software's recommendation and make a decision based on their experience. So that's yeah. kind of critical. So it's not actually making that decision for me. The accuracy will get better and better. And the more accurate it does get, we see that as a good thing because it's going to lead to improved outcomes and you know reduce costs for the patient, reduce trauma. It's quite a traumatic process, uh, IVF. Yeah. But I think what uh, you're probably talking about are domains where there is an autonomous decision. Yeah. If you look at autonomous vehicles, that's a lot more open and, and more complex problem to be able to just leave that to the machine, which with some AI techniques, it's not completely explainable. And that may be a different story. In certain domains, particularly when there's autonomous decision-making, you'd want to make sure that not only is it working correctly, but you'd want to use AI techniques that are a lot more explainable and transparent to ensure that you understand exactly what the AI is doing and what decisions it's making. If it's put into a position where it's able to autonomously make decision for what a person would normally do. Do you think it'll get to a point where it will become unethical not to use the AI recommendations? In other words, will there be a time when the machine produces more accurate results than a human? I personally think that kind of happens naturally to a certain extent. So say someone uses Life Whisperer. Yeah. To start off with, they may take 50% of the recommendations. If they start to see that the recommendations are actually producing good results, they'll start to become more reliant on trusting the machine. And that's really what it's about. It's about trust. Can you trust the machine to make the right decision compared to what decision you can make? So I think over time that would naturally occur. Um, So people would trust the machine more on the assumption that it does the right thing. Whether you can, you know, claim that there's an ethical perspective. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure about that. So, uh, you know, people always like to be in control. Yeah. I fully understand that, particularly medical professionals. And I think everyone is going to be different in terms of how much they trust the machine and whether they're ready to give up that uh, decision-making ability to let the machine make that decision. Due to its complex nature, many people don't understand the details of how artificial intelligence actually works. 
similar to other technologies in the past, I would assume that proof is the key to convincing people of its value. Exactly. And that's the key to deep technology. Little is understood around deep technology. The nuance is that there needs to be a proof point. You need to prove the technology. No one's going to understand the details of how it works. A lot of times they don't quite believe it, etc. So there's a lot of proof points that you need to go through in order to convince people that, hey, this is going to make a difference. Yeah, And that's kind of the journey of startups that are dealing with the deep technology like AI or any other type of technology coming out of the university. Let's talk about job disruption. On one hand, with any new and disruptive technology, there's always a reality of job obsolescence. On the other hand, can you tell us what type of jobs will be created as a direct result of this AI-based image technology? A range of jobs. So as I mentioned before, it doesn't actually remove the embryologists or, or impact on their jobs, so you won't see a decrease there. But firstly, there's the jobs around the technology, artificial intelligence, et cetera, around medical imaging. But if you look at IVF specifically, there's a potential to actually increase jobs in that area and increase the industry more broadly using this type of technology. I'll give an example. So around the world, there's approximately 150 million infertile couples. Each year, only 3 million infertile couples undertake IVF. So a small proportion of the total number of infertile couples due to a range of reasons, and in particular, the high cost and the low success rates. Yeah. Now, if you're able to reduce those costs and increase those success rates by ensuring that you don't need so many treatments and infertile couples have greater confidence that if they go through IVF, that they'll get pregnant, then you can actually grow that industry more broadly and IVF would grow more significantly than it currently has in the past five to 10 years. Let's take a moment to talk about Watson. I'm sure many people today know of IBM's Watson and the milestones it's achieved using AI. What are your thoughts on Watson? Watson's good, particularly natural language and chatting. I know Watson has been applied to the medical area. Some aspects of medical imaging, which is what we specialize in. So obviously that's quite competitive and they're trying to solve some very big problems. For example, cancer. Yeah. For us, cancer is not really a problem. That's a big area, a big field. It's really hard to get a commercial business model around something so big. Obviously has big rewards, but hard to achieve. So we're more focused on very specific problems around medical imaging. But Watson's also looking at other ways to use AI to help the medical field and could be looking at natural language processing, um, you know, patient data, private medical data about people and how do you look at indicators and patterns that help you diagnose issues or other health conditions. So again, yeah, the data's out there and Watson's really there to churn through that data and see if there's anything interesting and new that it can get out of that information. From my understanding, they're bringing in data from patients papers and journals, which is really exciting. So from our perspective and looking at the medical industry, what they're doing is very exciting. Could you see you getting some sort of benefit from the flow on effect of that? Always, I guess in any business, particularly a startup in deep technology, you know, there's always a concern about competition and there's always going to be competition. But what's worse is if you're in an area that's so advanced and deep that the market doesn't understand what it's all about. Yeah. The saying in business is you're better off being the second person to the market rather than the first, because the first one has to have all that effort educating the market, yeah. explaining what can be done, etc. So from that perspective, I think IBM and Watson have done such a great job in educating the market around what AI is, what's capable. And sort of proving the concept. Exactly. Yeah. They've done some great work in all areas and not just medical, all areas of corporate business enterprise for leveraging artificial intelligence. Yeah. One thing I find interesting about Presagen is your joint venture model. 
This model helps drop the barriers of entry to partner organisations and gives them access to AI tech. Tell us a bit more about this JV model and how you partner with other organisations. Okay, so firstly, it needs to start with the medical institutes wanting to solve a particular patient problem. And it has to start with a clinical partner that not only has the data, can identify a specific problem, but has an existing customer base. Yeah. So when we build a solution, they've already got a customer base that not only can they trial it, but also sell it. So there's a guarantee that it's actually going to be used. So that's kind of the key criteria that we're looking at. We also want to make sure that it's quite a specific problem that we want to address. You know, we're not trying to send a man to the moon. You know, that requires huge investment, et cetera. So once we have that, it's just a matter of trying to get a cohort of different clinics with similar problem. And it needs to be a problem that's industry-wide. So the whole idea is we want to build a product to help patients, not only for that medical institute, but around the world. Yeah, And obviously that has better returns and justifiable for, uh, you know, making that investment and also the benefits for everyone to be involved. Once we have the clinics involved that are willing to participate in helping us, we get the data, they help us a bit of expertise to target the AI that we're building or training. And then once we get a solution, an AI solution for that, then they can help uh, with clinical trials because you need to do clinical trials before we get regulatory approval. And then after that process, yeah, we can scale that product around the world. Yeah. And not only can they help their patients, but there's also potential benefits for them in in different forms, different people interested in different things. Some medical institutes are interested in um, papers, some maybe royalties or discounts. But yeah, we're open to all business models. So it's really important. Is there the data and the problem and the institute that can really help build these products? And once we build it, that existing customer base to actually get it out there and start using it. You mentioned global. Tell us why it's so important to be global. It makes a better business case in terms of building a profitable business and a profitable product. For us, it's a necessity. It becomes very, very expensive if we're solving a medical problem just for one medical institute, just for their customers. Yeah. The numbers don't work very well okay. because you know, you're making an investment of one or $2 million depends on the regulatory process, et cetera. And when you're selling to that particular customer base, the numbers may not work out. But if you focus on problems that are global yeah. and you want to help patients around the world that have a similar problem, the numbers work a lot better and you can actually build products that can help everyone rather than just uh, within one particular clinic. So essentially, it's economies of scale that is critical to the commercial success. Exactly. And as far as the medical institutes go, it sounds like they'll see tangible benefits much sooner by entering a JV versus, say, trying to do it themselves, whether through Greenfield or acquisition. Exactly. And and it helps them drive the development, but also helps them, so it helps them monetize their data. So they've got data, it has value, we can help to do that for them. Um, It also helps them to improve patient outcomes because they're always looking to improve patient outcomes, always looking to improve their own processes. There's large medical institutes and there's small medical institutes. Now, some large medical institutes can afford AI people, you know, the technical expertise to do R&D in that area and look at building these type of solutions, but the small players don't. So in this type of business model, it doesn't matter about how big or small you are. It's about participating, giving up your data and some time in terms of the expertise and also the clinical contribution as well to actually test the technology when it's ready for market and ready to scale. Both Presigen and Life Whisperer are very innovative, driven teams. What do you do within your organisation to ensure your teams remain both innovative and passionate? It's really about solving problems. 
you know, industry problem. So that's kind of where we start. A lot of technologists start with the technology first, and it's a very common problem in startups and business. But, you know, you really need to have the finger on the pulse and really understand what's happening in the industry. Where is it kind of heading? What are the critical problems that people want to address? And then kind of associate that with the capability that you do have. I think what's also important is having a culture of innovation, which is really around risk-taking, you know, things aren't always going to work out. You need to be able to try things. You need to be able to invest in R&D or invest in uh, different options in order to see if something will work well. Yeah. And also, you know, don't be afraid of failure, but also have the freedom and agility as well. You know, we give our guys a lot of freedom to try different things and, and see what does and doesn't work, yeah. but obviously ensure that it really matches what people out there really need. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned don't be afraid of failure. We know that failure is necessary for innovation. How do you manage failure within your team? So in a startup, things do fail. That's just the nature of it. So when something goes wrong or bad, you know, you all get together and try to work out how do we get past this? You know, startups are all about survival. So you need to ensure, you know, it doesn't matter what is thrown at you. You need to persist and get through the good times and the bad times. I see a lot of large organizations, they don't take failure very well. Yeah. So failure can impact on your career. So that means people don't want to innovate. People don't want to take risks because it may be reflected on them negatively. Yes. And what also hampers potential innovation, if you do want to take a risk, these large organizations are very constraining. They don't give you the flexibility and agility to, to try to solve problems. You know, they're very slow. They're conservative. Lots of processes, you need approvals, and you can really struggle to innovate in that particular environment. So sometimes yeah. large organizations should work with startups to try to get that innovation in or even spin out these innovative ideas that you have and, and just give them the freedom and agility to really do what they want to do. But don't punish them for trying something and failing. You know, if it's a reasonable idea and there's backing of the organization, they should be encouraged to really try to push those barriers. With any high-tech organisation, both hiring and retaining talented people is an ongoing challenge. What methods do you use to keep your most talented people? It's more about uh, passion and attitude. Yep. So um, we've never lost anyone in terms of staff over our you know previous business and the like, except for one person that met someone overseas and <laughs> had to leave. But um, basically, we, we try to look for people that are really passionate about what we're doing, really yep. passionate about the deep technology, the outcomes. You know, life risk and precision. We're about changing the world. We're about improving patient outcomes. Yeah. Which you know in IVF that's life changing. Yeah. If uh, you can help an infertile couple have children, so just finding people that are really passionate about the outcome comes and the technology and innovating really helps us keep those people interested. The work we do is always interesting. You know, yeah. we're always trying to solve new problems, new challenges, both technically and commercially. You know, commercially, how do we get this product to yeah. market? How do we hit those milestones? It's hard work, but really exciting. And seeing something that from get-go and seeing something created and people using it and seeing it grow is just really rewarding. Yeah. How have you found hiring for high-tech roles such as AI or data science? There's been a lot of talk of shortages within these fields. We're trying to employ people at the moment, so both software engineers and AI. 
Yeah. Um, surprisingly, we did have a good turnout for AI, and I think because what we're doing is really interesting, it's yeah. it really resonates people that uh, are in the AI field. So that was great. We have struggled to find you know decent software engineers. So yeah, there is a lack of technical expertise out there with the passion and that right attitude that we're looking for yeah. to be able to come in and be part of what we call our family. Yeah. We prefer a small team that are good rather than a large team that's average. Yeah, quality over quantity. Do you think the skill shortage is a local problem or one that is more global? It is a global problem. Like if you look at uh, Silicon Valley, yep. you know, trying to find AI people there is extremely difficult. Someone was saying Google will pay $300,000 a year for some really good people in AI. Now, as a startup, we can't afford that. Yeah. So yeah, there's always a lack of talent in terms of technical expertise. Yeah. And those type of things, you know, having suitable immigration policies that can bring in really experienced people that are experienced technically becomes really important for the ecosystem and industry to thrive. Yeah, definitely. What about yourself, Don? What do you do to keep focused and passionate? What are your personal strategies for success? <laughs> um, there's a lot of things. So, so obviously, you know, personal life, you know, we have two young children. Yes. They're five and seven. So outside of our personal life, we still try to have plenty of time for our family. It's really about, as I said, being passionate about what you do. Lots of reading, what's happening in the industry and the technology, which is really important. And that really stimulates ideas about where things are going. And what we also do is a lot of mentoring. So we do a lot of mentoring, um, you know, CSIRO on Prime and Accelerate e-challenge with the University of Adelaide. There was a, a US-based hyper accelerator this week that we're involved with mentoring eight great South Australian companies. So we mentor other companies and that just keeps the passion alive to keep innovating and seeing what's out there and just keeps us going. It's very exciting to help startups and being in that startup scene. It's always innovative. So surrounding yourself with the innovation, surrounding yourself with other like-minded, passionate people is key to remaining passionate and keeping your vision strong. Exactly. And where we are right now, we're in the Think Lab, uh, is an incubator it's associated with the University of Adelaide, where all yep. the startups that are coming out of the university, as well as others, come to kick off their business. Um, there's also the Lot 14, which is South Australian Government Incubator. This It's a massive project where there's a lot of startups. We're also going to be associated with that as well. Yeah, just be around innovation, be around startups, and it just becomes more culturally embedded. And having that ambition to wanting to do something bigger, you know, we, yeah. we always try to encourage encourage uh, the people we mentor, you know, set the bar a bit higher. You may not achieve it, but yep. set it a bit higher, be ambitious. If you set it a bit higher, you'll achieve more than you originally wanted to. Yeah. I think a lot of people do undersell themselves and most people have a lot more in them, but they sell themselves short because of probably the social norms. Exactly. I never really sold myself that much until I spent quite a lot of time in Silicon Valley. We had an office in Silicon Valley with our previous business. Yeah. And what Americans do well is kind of not necessarily bragging, but really talking about their achievements and what they've done and really talk themselves up. Where in Australia, we're very conservative. We're scared to tell people the wins that we've had and what we've done. So I remember yep. when we started our business, we got four core team members in our business and two of them had to tell them, change your LinkedIn profile. Talk about your successes. Don't be so conservative. You've done some awesome things in your life. Let the world know about it. Let the world yeah. know how good you are. Yeah, because ultimately those people have the ability to help and inspire others. Absolutely. And you can only do that when you let people know what you've achieved. Yeah, exactly. It's a cycle. And with mentoring companies, they're great companies and you've got to give them, you know, the guidance and the confidence to do well. And, you know, we believe they will succeed. Just need the guidance and the confidence and that energy to succeed. 
And for our listeners, Don, is there a book that you recommend that has inspired you along your journey? A book I like, this was introduced to me by um, a VC a few years ago. Uh, the book's called A Good Hard Kick in the Ass. <laughs> Rob Adams, I think it is. Um, and it's really about how do you create a successful business? Yeah. And it's written in a very sarcastic way. And for those that have been through a startup or run a business, yeah, it's quite humorous and, and realistic and hard hitting yeah. in terms of uh, the realities of having a business. So for example, one of the passages that always resonates with me is, um, you know, people think, hey, I've got a great idea. Yeah. I'm going to be a billionaire. And it's like, well, there's lots of people with lots of ideas. The hard work is getting the idea to market is to, you know, solve the problem, get it to market, have customers pay for it. Now that's the hard bit in business, not just having the idea. The ideas are sometimes the easy part. So the book provides a lot of great advice and goes through some of the fundamentals of business and just helps you think about a lot of those aspects if you're trying to run your own business. Yeah. Thank you for that recommendation. That brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you very much, Don, for taking the time to be on Future Nation today and sharing your experience and insights with us. Yeah, thank you. I'm delighted to participate. It's been great. We are always looking for innovative and interesting people to be on our show. If you or someone you know would like to share their experience and be a featured guest on Future Nation, head on over to futurenation.co and click on Apply to Be a Guest. If you like this episode, please subscribe to receive future episodes as they are released. Once again, thank you for listening to Future Nation. Thank you for listening to Future Nation. Hey, no problem, buddy. Head on over to futurenation.co. What for? For show notes and more. Oh, and don't forget to share and subscribe.